Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. This is a big month for the military's Red Hill Underground Bulk Fuel Storage Facility. It marks 10 years since 27,000 gallons leaked from one of the massive tanks. That fuel still unaccounted for. This week also marks a new phase of removing the residual fuel in the pipes with the new task force transitioning in. Its mission, to close and clean up the historic installation. Back on track at Kona's airport following emergency repairs to its runway. And we learn more about what's being called the invisible problem of human trafficking and what's being done to help survivors heal from trauma. Plus, we commemorate January as Kalopapa Month and we shine the spotlight on Henry Capono, who talks about taking his On the Rise program to help new musicians to a new level. morning. You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Work on removing remaining fuel in the pipes at the Red Hills uh, bulk, the Navy's Red Hill Bulk Fuel Storage Facility began Monday, just as a new team began transitioning to take over from Joint Task Force Red Hill Commander Rear Admiral John Wade. This next phase involves removing residual fuel that's collected in low points in the system, which will take about two months to complete. At that point, Wade, who's been the point man for this process, will be transferred elsewhere. Here's Wade. The Navy Closure Task Force is going to be more enduring longer term because this is going to be a long-term dedicated effort by the Department of Defense and the Department of the Navy. So while it will be led by a military officer and have a deputy with a military officer, the preponderance of individuals will be civilian. That ensures continuity because of the long-term effort. In the military, we have you know, individuals coming in and out every couple of years, which is a valid concern, uh, which has been noted. The Red Hill problem set is very complex. It's multidimensional. There are valid concerns from the community. Public engagement is critical. I've committed myself to public engagement, either direct engagement with the, with, uh, the community or through the media. And that's an important uh, aspect of the mission. Um, you know, uh, I, I believe in, 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 in two things. One, there's the technical aspect of the mission. That's the deliberate, methodical approach to remove the fuel above the aquifer. But then there's the, the importance of communicating with the public to explain what we're doing and why, and to also listen. And Admiral Barnett, even though the Joint Task Force has been focused on defueling, he's been supporting me in this effort and he's been by my side. So even though we've started a formal turnover today, he's been learning, observing, and also communicating uh, since he got here over a year ago. He is committed to that continued engagement. It's absolutely critical. And uh, I, I, you know, it's, uh, it's the only way we can move forward because you can't change the past, but we have to have respectful dialogue. We have to drive solutions for the community's benefit. And that's what he'll be committed to do just like I've been. Again, my mission is to safely and expeditiously defuel. We were able to remove a little over 104 million gallons from October to December. And we can remove the majority of the residual fuel, the fuel that is uh, still in the pipelines that couldn't be removed with gravity in low point bends, in low point drains and bends and such. But there's a, a small amount of residual fuel combined with uh, sludge in the tanks, which is sediment, that's going to take much longer to remove and it must be sequenced and integrated so that there are no mishaps and no releases to the environment and there's many other activities that need to be orchestrated like a symphony to ensure safety and security of personnel in the environment because it's such a long and complex process the department of defense has decided that after we can move as much fuel out at the at the most expeditious manner this longer term effort will be conducted by this new Navy Closure Task Force, who's going to be here for a much longer time. Even though it's a military-led organization, the preponderance of individuals are civilian to ensure continuity of effort, continuity of mission, because this will be a long-term effort, and that's what the Department of Defense is absolutely committed to get after. Transitioning in as head of the Red Hill Closure Task Force is Admiral Stephen Barnett. He's also the commander of Navy Region Hawaii, who, and he's been here for the past year. The mission of this n- new group will be to decommission and clean up any spills from the massive underground tank, uh, whether it be in the soil or in the water. 
We're going to have about 32,000 gallons of residual and sludge. Okay. About 4,000 gallons of residual will be in the pipelines, the 11 and a half miles of pipeline. Like I said, that stretch that if you put end to end could stretch from here to Diamond Head. There's going to be 28,000 gallons of sludge that's going to be in the remaining 14 tanks that are empty right now. So the key is we're going to have to go in there and use some good elbow grease and just remove that sludge, which is common in tanks, uh, fuel tanks. So we're going to get that out. We're going to have a contract action. They're going to take that, that sludge and it, will, and it will be disposed of uh, via normal hazmat ways, and we'll be monitoring that. What we have to do is physically go inside the tank and, and they would have to lift it out and take the sludge out. That's something that we've done in the past uh, when we do our cleaning and inspection and repair of tanks. So it's something that we've done before. It's just that now when we clean it out, clean all the sludge out, we're not gonna be utilizing the tanks for anything else. I believe uh, that we should know something of how the site assessment is gonna look towards the end of the summer. Okay, so that's when the site assessment should be out. We should be working that process. And that's what will drive the actual, rem the actual remediation portion of it. But uh, we are committed to being here the entire time. And I wanna stress that point, we are committed. This is not just a walk away. This is a, this is a fix it and do the right thing. They'll be studying what's there, looking in the ground, seeing what's there, and then that will drive the plan of what they have to do. And that'll be work with the regulators and other subject matter experts. And so it'll be a comprehensive, not just now. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a holistic look at what we need to do to remediate the entire uh, facility at Red Hill. And the military is planning an open house to allow the public a chance to ask questions about the transition and closure of the Red Hill facility. Uh, that meeting is planned for February 7th at Cahey Lagoon Veterans Hall. Remaining repairs to the runway at Kona's International Airport on Hawaii Island were completed this morning. Flights are back on schedule, according to the State Department of Transportation. The airport was reopened yesterday morning after operations were shut down abruptly Monday afternoon due to cracks on the runway. Governor Josh Green and State Transportation Director Ed Sniffen spoke at a news conference to explain the timeline of that emergency shutdown. Here's Sniffen. And a quick note, when he says yesterday, he's referring to Monday. Yesterday in the morning, about eight o'clock, our staff uh, identified a crack on the in the runway, about eight inches long, about two inches wide at the most. By eleven o'clock, um, they looked at it again um, to make sure that uh, things didn't progress, and it was about the same size. But the same crack by two thirty um, had accelerated in degradation tremendously. It turned into a three-foot hole in that area. So at about two thirty uh, yesterday, our staff issued a notum um, to airlines to say. There's this fault in the runway uh, to be careful. We sent out our staff to inspect the area to determine whether or not we keep it open or we close it. Closing a runway, especially uh, Kona, uh, and a runway like Kona Airport, um, is a tremendous decision. Uh, we understand the impacts they're going to have on travel, on the passengers, on our partner airlines, and our cargo of facilities that come through those areas. But when we started inspecting the area and determined that the, ex the accelerated, accelerated degradation was a concern, and the potential for other portions of that runway accelerating and degradation was big as well. We determined it's time to shut it down. So at 4.20 yesterday, we shut down the runway to all operations, both flights, both in and out. Uh, we sent our crews out to ensure that we inspect the area, determine the scope of work because we were determined to fix that last night. Uh, we got our contractor on board. Our contractor sent up their crews, Grace Pacific, sent up their crews from Oahu uh, through Lihue to Hilo they drove up from Hilo to Kona um, to, to make sure they started cutting the pavement in the areas that we had identified. They also sent their crews to pick up their mill that was in Kohala to, to bring it back to the airport. So they went through tremendous lengths to ensure that we got the resources that we needed to make this fix done or get this fix done. Our contractor started working at about 9 p.m. Um, on cutting in the runway areas that we had identified. Um, and by 1130, uh, we started milling the area. By one, we started paving. So by 2.30, we finished up the paving operations, uh, made sure that we looked at other areas, and we found another portion, a three by 10 portion that we felt we had to fix in order to, deter um, to ensure we didn't have any faults in the runway today. So we fixed that area as well. Um, by 3.30, we were done with the work. 
4.30, we cleaned up the, the runway to ensure that there was no debris uh, and no danger to airplanes. And before 5 o'clock, we issued a note to open the airport uh, to all of our, our, our partners again. Um, throughout the night, we kept um, our partners updated uh, to ensure that they understood where we were on the repairs of the runway. Um, I got I to gotta say, I really appreciate the work of our contractor, Great Pacific, um, and the work that, and the efforts that they put through and our staff on the Big Island, uh, who were out there all night ensuring that uh, we could fix that runway, get everything moving again today, um, and keep everybody safe as we did it. Um, this comes on the right on the verge of us pushing out our $120 million construction project. We're gonna be reconstructing that whole 11,000 foot runway um, and starting up by August, September of this year. So the timing is unfortunate, um, but we're happy that we made the decision to fix it rather than, um, than pushing this to potential um, safety issues for, for our airlines. And that was State Transportation Director Ed Sniffen explaining the unexpected shutdown of Kona's airport on Monday. Governor Josh Green pointed to the recent heavy rain that contributed to the worsening problems of runway cracks. Uh, the Department of Transportation told HPR this morning that because the disruption to flight service was weather-related, they're labeling the situation an uncontrolled disruption and will not be offering reimbursements to those impacted financially by the airport closure. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We have an interview with Hawaiian musician Henry Capono coming up later in the show. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're taking a closer look at the man and his career. Though many know him from his days performing with Cecilio Rodriguez as part of the iconic duo Cecilio and Capono, Henry Capono has branched out from music over the years and made a name for himself in several other areas. He authored an award-winning children's book called A Beautiful Hawaiian Day. He's also acted in feature films uh, such as Damien and Waterworld and appeared in television shows like Magnum P.I. and Birds of Paradise. Before launching his musical career, he even earned a scholarship to play football at the University of Hawaii, though injuries prevented him from making a career out of it. Alongside his many Nahoku Hanohano Award wins, Henry Capona was also nominated for a Grammy in 2007 for one of his solo albums. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're hoping you can tell us which album got the nomination. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareedHawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Carlene Montes de Oca. I'm the author of Dog as My Doctor, Cat as My Nurse. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how our dogs and cats can help enhance our health and our well-being. Sunday morning at 11. 
Support for HPR comes from the Kim Coco Fund for Justice of the Iwamoto Family Foundation, partnering with Hawaii Appleseed and RISE, Residential Youth Services and Empowerment, to help end homelessness in Hawaii. Here in Hawaii, the problem of human trafficking has played out in our hotels and out in the agriculture fields. The exploitation of sex workers, farm workers, or domestic help is a global problem and violates the most basic of human rights. The group Imua Alliance was founded in 2010 to help rescue and care for human trafficking survivors statewide. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Chris Caulfield, Imua Alliance's executive director, as we mark National Human Trafficking Awareness Month. Every January, we do talk about human trafficking, and then for the rest of the year, society at large tends to forget that this is a problem. And in Hawaii, there are a couple of reasons why I think that is the case. One is we want to present Hawaii as a family-friendly tourist paradise, so we don't want to put a blight like human trafficking on the news, which could scare away tourists and visitors and hamper the economy. And the other is that Trafficking is something that tends to happen in places that people don't see. It happens behind closed doors, you know, behind closed doors in hotel rooms. So they're not necessarily seeing it front and center the way that, for example, you would see the houseless population or something like that. So they don't know the prevalence of human trafficking in their community. And it is very, very prevalent in Hawaii. Sex trafficking is really the exploitation of vulnerability. And I think what we see in Hawaii is that there are so many vulnerabilities for traffickers to play upon we see extreme poverty, there's a high cost of living. That can be something that sex traffickers can use to provide access to victims by offering them gifts or economic possibilities that they could never have dreamed of. We estimate that there are 1,500 to 2,500 unique and individual victims every year in Hawaii. There are 125 to 150 different high-risk sex trafficking establishments. Those are places where we can document three or more cases of prostitution within a given 30-day period. We've gotten a lot better over the last decade at addressing children. We still have a long ways to go when it comes to our adult population, though, and we really need to start honing in on how we're going to do that. So when you talk about this systemic problem in Hawaii, invisible but right in front of us, how is it that one human being is able to have so much control? to make them sexual servants. Yeah, so I mean, if you wanted to have a simple legal definition of sex trafficking, it's forced prostitution, right? It's prostitution that's done by force, fraud, or coercion. And it's, I think, very surprising to some people that this is a thing that occurs in Hawaii, and they have images of it from television or from the movies. They think it's what we call snatch and grab trafficking, where somebody's kidnapped and then spirited away to a foreign country where you know they're held hostage. That's not actually how this usually operates. It usually operates through the building of relationships. Traffickers will identify victims. They're really sophisticated and very good at identifying people who may be vulnerable, they'll sometimes work for as much as three or four years we've seen to groom potential victims through building trust in order to bring them into their sphere, develop a relationship that's based on trust. And then at some point, there is a flip that occurs where that trust is then used against the survivor and becomes a form of emotional abuse. And so what usually happens is we find something called a trauma bond develops. A trauma bond is where a survivor forms an emotional attachment to their abuser through the repeated cycle of violence and abuse and positive reinforcement. And in the trafficking world, what you see is the violence of sex trafficking. We'll often see physical violence, emotional violence, psychological damage. But you'll also see positive reinforcement. So pimps and traffickers will provide for survivors basic needs. They will sometimes shower them with gifts. Also, there is positive reinforcement for survivors in the sense that they're receiving a lot of money for using their body for sexual services. And they're not keeping that money. That money's going back to traffickers. But that sort of process leads to the psychological formation of an attachment to their body as the main form of value, right? And so this is a, an ongoing cycle that happens over a long period of time. And it can be very difficult to break that cycle. I think it's we're always combating that misperception that we can just, we're going and busting into a, a brothel with law enforcement and stealing people out and then rescuing them, putting them back in you know, with their families. That's not how this operates. It's actually very difficult when we identify victims, often to get them to recognize that what's happening is in and of itself a form of abuse because it's like Stockholm syndrome. They won't often recognize that what's happening is a form of violence. We worked with a victim at one point in time who couldn't even remember her own name. So when you have that level of trauma, it's very, very difficult 
to get to a point where someone is psychologically and emotionally stable enough to receive appropriate trauma care, appropriate services. And that's something that, that we're really trying to work on. Right. You are identifying that you need those social safety nets. And you yourself have said in the past that education ends exploitation. Highlight some of those programs or things that you have done, you are implementing that are providing these safety nets. Yeah. So there are a couple of things that I like to talk about in terms of our core services, right? And one of them I think needs to be front and center for every anti-trafficking organization, which is prevention and education. Ideally, we don't want to be serving any victims because we don't want there to be victims. And the best way to do that is to provide robust anti-exploitation prevention education in public schools and in private schools. So we reach about 10,000 students a year. We also train school staff. We train principals and teachers. They're often the best first responders to children who are going to be at risk of trafficking because they're outside of parents with kids more than anybody else, perhaps. So they can see red flags. Often they can see red flags that parents can't because they see things happen in school that that are not going to happen in the household setting. They'll see children interact with their friends. They'll overhear conversations. They'll see what's happening around the school community, for example, at shopping centers. So we try to provide robust, trauma-informed, and also very inclusive gender identity and sexual orientation, uh, inclusive prevention education training so that we can actually sort of prevent trafficking before it begins. Another thing that we launched a couple of years ago that we've really been building out that I'm, I'm very proud of is a host homes program where instead of trying to build a new facility to house residential treatment services for survivors, we take people who are willing to offer up their homes, we give them training in comprehensive trauma care, and then we will work with survivors and allow the survivor to select a house, a home that's participating in the program, it's usually three to six months, in order to have a place to stay where they can receive residential treatment, they can have services coordination, whether that's mental health, physical health, law enforcement support, and basic services, job training. We can sort of centralize that system of care within a trauma-informed household. That became really critical after the Maui wildfire. So we know after emergencies, you see spikes in domestic violence, you see spikes in gender violence of all kinds, and sex trafficking falls into that category as well. After COVID, most service providers experienced an increase in a demand for their services of over 300%. After the Maui wildfires, specific to Maui, we had a lot of cases of gender violence we wanted to make sure that people who were highly traumatized had places to stay that were going to be very sensitive. So the state launched programs to try to incentivize people to offer up their homes to people who were coming from displaced families. We wanted to make sure that we had really trauma-informed places for those who've been impacted by gender violence and specifically exploitation to stay if they had been displaced by the wildfire so that they could continue to receive that same kind of care and services. And so we've, over the last six months, we've helped a couple of dozen individuals receive that kind of care through our host homes program. And we're trying to build that up, build that out. We're accepting more families into that system every day. Ideally, we'd like to build it up to about 50 homes, you know, equivalent to a very large residential treatment center on the continent. So if we could get that kind of programming off the ground, then we, I think we could really make a difference in helping survivors exit the sex trade and find trauma-informed places where they can stabilize and then re-enter society in a, in a very healthy way. January is also the month when our lawmakers go back to work. So is there something that you're following this session that we can also follow along with you? So there are three bills we'd really like to see the legislature pass. One was introduced last year. It's a bill to expand prevention education training, specifically for school staff. It doesn't cost any money. All it does is require the Hawaii Department of Education to offer training to any school staff member that wants to be trained in how to respond to potential cases of human trafficking. Basically, we just want school staff to be notified that training is available on demand. Another bill that we'd really like to see lawmakers enact this year would be to close the loophole that exists between state law and federal law when it comes to identifying victims of child sex buyers as a form of sex trafficking. So right now, federal law designates buying sex with a child as a form of sex trafficking, but state law does not. So what happens then is that children who are survivors of child solicitation are not identified as sex trafficking victims, which prevents them from receiving services that are reserved to sex trafficking victims. And there are a whole system of services, both at the state level and especially at the federal level, 
where you can only access those services if you are properly legally identified as a survivor of sex trafficking. And then the last thing, we believe that if somebody identifies themselves as being a victim of sexual exploitation to law enforcement, to a medical professional, to a first responder, they should be immunized from prosecution for any prostitution-related offense. Right now, that's not the case. I will say that the Honolulu prosecutor has tried very hard not to prosecute victims of sex trafficking by limiting prosecutions for people who are found to be engaging in prostitution. They really want to take a survivor-first mentality. Not only will that be beneficial in terms of, you know, shifting our legal apparatus to be more victim-centered, it's also going to create a legal paradigm where people feel safe coming forward about their experiences because they know that they're not going to be prosecuted for the prostitution-related acts that they've been forced into by traffickers, right? So mm -hmm. this is a really easy bill, we think, and we're really hoping to get the attorney general's support, the prosecutor's support in trying to move this forward this year. Okay, so three bills on the table that you will be shepherding this session. Any last thoughts before we have to wrap? Yeah, you know, the only thing that I like to leave people with, this is a year-round problem. It needs a year-round response. If you see something that you think is a red flag for trafficking in your community, then please contact law enforcement, contact service providers. This is not something that's just happening in the corners of our communities. It can happen anywhere, especially when we talk about child trafficking. Sometimes people think that their communities, if they live in more affluent areas, in fact, what we find when you look at the data for which schools are most heavily impacted by child trafficking, it tends to be schools in more affluent areas because there are more latchkey kids and because technology can provide that means of facilitation for traffickers to form relationships with kids and kids put everything online now, right? So uh, you know if a child is depressed or if they're having a bad day with their relationship or at school, those vulnerabilities are there for a trafficker to identify and then try to form a relationship with that child and exploit. So please, if you see something you believe is improper, if you see signs of exploitation, then contact somebody so that we can try to provide as much help as we can. And again, this is not a, a problem that only happens in January. This is something that's happening in all of our communities all throughout the year. And we really need to make sure that we have an everyday accessible system of care for those in need. That was Chris Caulfield, Executive Director of EMUA Alliance. He was talking with HPR's Lillian Song. The organization is reaching out to support survivors forced to work in the adult sex industry. Links to resources and the human trafficking hotlines will be on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org later today. Support for HPR comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providing auto insurance since 1911, committed to delivering local service with global backing. F-I-C-O-H dot com. I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we catch up with the education nonprofit Hawaii Kids Can. We'll find out about their latest projects, including Hawaii tutoring and digital equity in education. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors installing Daikin products, that's D-A-I-K-I-N, at CostcoHawaii.com. About four years since the National Park Service shut down tours to Kalaupapa on Molokai because of the pandemic. It's not clear why it's remained closed. January marks Kalaupapa Month to mark the arrival of the first patients suffering from Hansen's disease in the 1800s. HPR reporter Catherine Kluwit-Pactel joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, yeah, so I understand that uh, uh, they had a little gathering over there to mark this month. They did on January 6th, which uh, marks 
Um, January 6, 1866, as you said, was the day that 12 people arrived in Kowapapa. They were the first of nearly 8,000 men, women, and children who were exiled to Kowapapa there over the next 100 years. And so on January 6th, um, a group of Kowapapa residents and Ka'ohana o Kowapapa um, organization members and employees at the settlement joined <clears throat> to remember, uh, you know, the the first 12 people who arrived there and had a really um, meaningful and, uh, you know, thought-provoking celebration. They walked to Kalawa, which is on the eastern side of the peninsula, where those early uh, folks settled the three miles there. So they walked in those footsteps and uh, just, you know, remembered the reason that January is declared Kalapapa Month. So that was first observed in 2022 after it was signed into state law by Governor Ige in 2021. And now every year we have, you know, this opportunity to remember the history and honor uh, those folks who were exiled there. And I imagine that uh, some of the folks that went down there then, you know, had to get permission uh, to visit. They did. So currently the the process for being able to go into the settlement is through the Department of Health uh, special permit. Um, previously, the visitor limit uh, had been set at 100 people per day. And as you mentioned, uh, there previously had been tours uh, and, and visitors permitted into the settlement on a regular basis. And that was postponed um, during COVID, and they've had some changes in, in administration since then. Um, the Department of Health works alongside the National Park Service in Kalapapa. Uh, the Department of Health's primary, um, you know, uh, jurisdiction there is with the Kalapapa residents, the former patients who choose to remain there and call Kalapapa home. So, you know, their health and safety and, and their wishes really come first in, in all decisions uh, regarding Kalapapa at this point. And so you talked to uh, someone who was there of, at the uh, uh, gathering on January 6th. I did. Valerie, yes, Valerie Monson of Ka'ohana o Kalapapa, which again is a advocacy organization uh, formed in 2003. Uh, she talked about what those early residents experienced when they arrived in Kolopapa. They were facing loneliness. They'd just been taken from their families. They had a disease that at that time was uncurable. They were facing an uncertain future. So you just think of all of those things weighing on their minds. When they got to Kalawao, there was no doctor, there was no medicine. So it was the Kama Aina who really took people in and helped them. The healthier of the sick people were helping those who were less able. And so to me, that just shows how a community was coming together already. Even when there seemed to be so little hope for these, for these early people affected by the disease, they were coming together as a community. Within six months after those first people were sent, 35 men and women established Silawama Church. You know, they established their own, their own congregation. They didn't have a church building at the time, but they came together. Another astonishing thing is within five years, they had raised that money to build a church and, and they had a bell. So, I mean, these people are, are so amazing. They were so resilient and strong and kind and caring for each other. You know, the sense of community that Kalapapa had is really something that was quite powerful. Yeah, it's such a rich history there, you know, that uh, kind of the point in time uh, in Hawaii's history. For sure. And another reason I think it's important to remember that January was chosen, especially to remember Kalapapa, is in January 1895 was when the final Kama'aina of Kalapapa, so these are folks who had lived there for generations before it became a place of exile, were forced to leave the peninsula because of those government laws surrounding uh, Hansen's disease or leprosy. And <clears throat> so quarantine laws uh, were abolished in 1969, and um, many former patients uh, choose to continue living there. And so there are eight residents at this time still living who have the right to live at Kalapapa. Not all of them do, um, but it's important to remember that, you know, this, this is still their home. Valerie Monson shares what she hope, 
hopes Kolopapa Month will mean for people. We want people to just be thinking of the people of Kalapapa and what they went through and also the resilience and the strength of the people. Sometimes, especially the early people of Kalapapa are described in a way that was not accurate. I also hope people continue to learn. I'd love to see people in January say, I'm going to read a book about Kalapapa. You know, I had a teacher contact me earlier this week and said that she's having her class read the true story of Kalua Ika Olau as told by his wife, Pi'ilani. So that's what we're hoping. More people will want to read books that were based on the history of Kalapapa, based on the words of the people. I hope people can go to our website and look at the different materials we have posted. We want this history to be remembered as accurately and as authentically as possible. And uh, I understand that they've got some kind of webinar that they're planning for this month. One has already passed. There is another one scheduled for January 27th that talks about a a chapter in Kalapapa's history and how residents stood up for their right to be included in decisions affecting them. You can um, go to kalopapaohana.org and find out more about the resources and activities as well as that webinar coming up. All right. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. That was HBR's Catherine Kluwet-Pactel talking to us about Kalopapa. We'll have links to that webinar on the conversation page of our website after the show. From the mountains to the sea Today's Mono Minute features a song of an invasive species you've probably seen flying around Oahu, the red-vented bulbul. It's sharing its song on our island, uh, and it has been for the last 75 years after it was brought over from Asia. University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart shares how it's impacted our native ecology. If you live on Oahu, you've likely seen red-vented bulbuls around your house, neighborhood, or park. They're about 8 inches long, mostly black, with a red patch under their tail, or vent. They're also the only black bird on Oahu with a black crest on its head. Red-vented bulbuls are native to India and Southeast Asia, and were introduced to Honolulu as cage birds in the 1950s. The name bulbul comes from a Persian word for nightingale but the scratchy and throaty calls of the bulbul are not considered by many to be as melodious as those of that well-known bird. Red-vented bulbuls are considered pests as they love to eat various fruits like guava, lychee, mango, papaya, and even orchid buds, as well as insects and geckos. In Hawaii, red-vented bulbul is on the injurious wildlife list, and they're among the IUCN's list of top 100 invasive species worldwide. In addition to urban areas, they're common in upland forests, where they're known to spread the seeds of a number of invasive plant species. Like all birds, red-vented bulbuls are beautiful in their own way, but we should do our best to keep them from spreading from Oahu to other islands. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. When you support HPR, you support journalism about our islands, from our islands. 
There is no shortage of homes to solve Maui's housing crisis, says Mayor Richard Bisson. It's not that we don't have enough homes, it's that we don't have enough money to pay for those particular homes. With your support, HPR brings you stories that affect us all. But 24,000 units that are already built and they sit empty for much of the year. These properties represent a huge chunk of that tourism economy, but I don't want these families that have been here for generations to have to leave. We only need to house 3,000 to 3,500 families. That represents about 15% of all of the short-term rentals and second homes we have on Maui. It's a large percentage, but it's not so large that I lose hope. I think we as a people sort of need to prioritize helping each other over profiting from each other. Support news from across our islands on HBR. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. Now it's time for the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier, we focused our attention on our next guest, musician Henry Capono. You may know him from his days performing as part of the Hawaiian Renaissance-era duo Cecilio and Capono. Capono and Cecilio Rodriguez formed their uh, group in 1973, and they released three albums in the following year on Columbia Records, one of the biggest labels in the country at that time. To date, the two have released more than a dozen full-length albums, which incorporated various genres from pop to soul to traditional Hawaiian music. The duo was recognized with the Hawaii Academy of Recording Arts Lifetime Achievement Award in 2009. Individually, they have also released several solo recordings. Kapono has won several Nahoku Hanohano Awards over the years and was named Favorite Entertainer of the Year as recently as 2021. In 2007, Kapono was nominated for a Grammy Award for his solo album, The Wild Hawaiian, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. But we stumped you on that. But that's a quiz. If you have an idea you'd like to share for one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Beloved Hawaiian musician Henry Capono is kicking off a new series of concerts featuring up-and-coming local music artists tonight at Manoa Valley Theater. It's part of his On the Rise program, or OTR. It's dedicated to elevating Hawaii's musicians. The program was started in 2023. It's expanding this year to include workshops and seminars to help artists develop an understanding of the various aspects of the music business. Tonight's concert will be hosted by local musician uh, Alex Akawakami, who considers himself the first graduate of OTR. The Conversations' Russell Subiono got a chance to talk to Capono and Kawakami recently about the program. What prompted you to create this program? I think what prompted it was COVID. When COVID hit, all the musicians were out of work. I lost all my gigs, so I knew everybody else lost their gigs. So my wife and I put a program together to um, send out these $500 Foodland gift cards and send it out. So we got it out in a couple of weeks, and it really helped get the spirit of the musicians out there that needed help. And it also made us realize that there's musicians that they didn't want money. What they wanted was work. And um, <laughs> it was a great program, and, and thanks to Alex and his family for helping us get that whole kicking that whole thing off. It was a successful program. So we started this OTR that my wife came up with that name. And uh, it's really just to support the local musicians and put them in a light that showcases them and not just in a, in a corner somewhere. So, you know, these guys are really talented. We have a lot of talent in Hawaii. And um, they don't get the opportunities to be seen in the right light. Alex, as a musician from a younger generation, What's your perspective on how the On The Rise program helps musicians from your generation and younger? For me, I like to consider myself the first graduate of the On The Rise program because <laughs> back in 2016, yeah. before... Over the rise. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm over. Um, in 2016, before the foundation and before the On The Rise program, I was living in L.A. and Henry gave me the opportunity to come down to one of his concerts and jump on stage with him and play music. And it really began a, a nice start to a, a different part of my music career and led me to new gigs and new opportunities in music that 
I don't think I would have gotten if I didn't perform with Henry. And so to me, this program means a lot. And I can see that the musicians, they're great on the music side. They're better than a, a lot of people that I've seen, not just in Hawaii, but around the world. But they just need that extra push and that extra spot where they can shine and nail the music and get the new audience. And On the Rise, I think, is, you know, it's very young, only a year old, but it's becoming one of those things that I think is going to catapult these artists to another level that, you know, they deserve. And Henry, I know the program, it's expanding by introducing workshops and seminars to understand the various aspects of music and, and the business. Can you talk about what participants will learn and why it's important for them to have this knowledge? I think, you know, I've had a long career, and I've been through a lot, and I think it's just sharing my experience with um, a lot of these musicians through workshops and through different programs and scholarships and giving them some kind of of a path to follow, you know, follow their dreams and um, just, you know, have them be able to be confident enough and believe in themselves and move forward with some knowledge and not just jumping in there blind. Yeah, because the music industry has changed in the last few decades, and I feel like maybe it's become harder to navigate. Is that part of the reason why this program is important, is to help kind of guide up-and-coming musicians through kind of the the difficult part of being in the industry? Alex? I was going to say, you know, I think Henry is a, a perfect example of navigating <laughs> how the music industry has changed the last 30 years, right? I mean, he just celebrated CNK's 50th anniversary, right. and, you know, he's more popular than ever, and his music is still living on. And so if there's ever an example of someone who's been able to navigate, you know, Henry's the one that is a perfect example. And so I, and I think the artists realize that because they all look up to him and his whole team. They do such a great job that it's a great example for them to follow. Uh, you know, every every musician has, has that big dream, you know, and I think, um, you know, I was fortunate, you know, I, all I wanted to do was play music and have fun. And I was fortunate enough to get on a label that the biggest label in the world. And that experience really educated me on, on how this whole business works. You know, I was told that the music business is 80% and art is, is 20%. And uh, it was hard for me to, to chew on. But then I realized, you know, it was, it was right. I had to learn the business because the business was 80% of music. Henry, you, you've had a significant role in Hawaii's music industry since the 70s. How did you navigate the industry without a formal mentorship program like this? Were there people who helped you along on your journey? You know, I just had a passion for it, and I just followed people that I, I had respect for, their music. Mostly that, that's how I learned when I was younger, is listening to radio or, or records and, and learning from those artists like that. So I, I kept myself in tune, you know, every step of the way, knowing how the music is moving forward and then what's happening in the music industry. So, you know, you just got to keep up with everything if, if that's your passion, yeah. you know. And that was my passion. That's all I wanted to do. So if I wanted to stay in it, I had to get on that road and, and kind of watch and listen and learn. Alex, I know that you come from a musical family. Your, your father is a musician. What has it meant to you to have music mentors? How have they shaped you? Oh, I mean, my whole life has been mentored musically. You know, like you said, my, growing up, my dad he used to play, you know, five nights a week, and I would get to go and sit with him and <laughs> sit in the rehearsals. And so I, I consider that my first mentorship from when I was, you know, three years old and, and going on. And I've been fortunate to have a good friend in Roy Sakuma and Jake Shimabukuro, who mentored me all through school. And then that, that's why, you know, I, this OTR program is so important to me because as I got older and, you know, more into music, I didn't have that mentor to help out. And that's where Henry came in, you know, unofficially as, you know, an on-the-rise artist. And that's where he came in and continues to mentor me as, as we continue to play together and, you know, host various events like this one coming up at Manoa Theater, it means the world. And I, I can see that in the artists, too. They, they love that they're part of these things. And it's helping them, and it's helping them with their confidence as well. It's really cool. Henry, what's the ultimate goal of OTR? Say it's something that is able to go on for generations. What would you hope 
it can accomplish over time. I hope, you know, as we go, that more musicians graduate from OTR and have their own dream uh, fulfilled in, in the music business. You know, I think as life goes on, there's going to be more and more young artists that want to want to pursue the music industry. It's not an easy industry to, to be in, but if we can kind of lighten the path and, and shine, a, shine some kind of light on it, then I think that's going to help now and the future. And hopefully we can build something that's, that we build artists to be great artists, give them that confidence to show the world that we, we have some great talent here. And Alex, you mentioned <laughs> the On The Rise concert series. Can you share those details with the audience? Yeah, it's coming up Manoa Valley Theater on uh, Wednesday, which is really special to me because I've, I've a third generation growing up in Manoa, so it's really cool to see this event in my hometown, I guess you could say. Yeah, coming up on Wednesday, and we're going to be featuring two on-the-rise artists, Ryan Perez, Drew Henry. They're incredible, incredible mu- musicians. Henry's going to make an appearance, and I'm going to be hosting it, playing some music as well. It's going to be really fun. It's, it's one of these things that we talked about a while ago, and as we were designing it and producing it, it just became more and more exciting to me because it's just exciting to see these younger artists being able to perform and giving them the opportunity to shine. We're challenging them to do things that maybe is uncomfortable for them, but it's something that we know that they're going to shine at. So we hope to see you guys Wednesday, Manoa Valley Theater. I think the door is open at 630 and they'll have drinks and everything outside in the courtyard, and it's going to be a great night. So hopefully everybody, not just in Manoa, but from around uh, in Honolulu and all around can come and see us. Yeah, you know, the, the, the really fun part, too, is that it's at the theater, and the sets are different. They're going to have different shows during the months that they have, the shows that they have. And this week we have a kitchen, so we're calling it the music kitchen. The next time, we don't know what it's going to be, but, you know, we're going to try to create, create things and produce it so that people uh, have fun and, and enjoy you know being a part of this whole series yeah we um we encourage up-and-coming artists to come and check it out and and you know see what what we're doing and also um you know everybody out there to come and see what we're doing and come and support hawaii's artists and um you know we just want hawaii to be recognized as a music industry and um this is the beginning of big things to come Henry Capono, Alex Kawakami, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate talking to you. Thanks, Russell. Uh, yeah, thank you, Russell. Thank you very much, and Happy New Year. We've been hearing from Henry Capono and Alex Kawakami. They were talking to HPR's Russell Subiano about the On the Rise program. The 2024 OTR concert series kicks off tonight at Manoa Valley Theater at 7.30 p.m. and will feature musicians Ryan Perez and Drew Henme. More concerts are scheduled for March, May, and July of this year. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website after the show. This world were a flower garden And your smiling face a flower therein Sunflower with the golden hair Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow we plan to hear from Governor Josh Green as the legislative session gets underway. Leave your feedback on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The conversation is available as a podcast on our website. Look for it on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast store. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.